Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. that takes us to step four, which is learning my suffering story by which I make sense of my experience. What are the other ways that I begin to explain and try to seek a form of comfort about what has happened that is outside of the reality of of what God has? And J.I. Packer gets us on a, a good foot of starting there. He says... As we struggle with the ache of loss, the grip of our grief imposes a kind of relational paralysis. Perhaps grief is a true reflection of hell, where the ache of losing God and all good, including the good of community, those that we love, will be endless. Be that as it may, the most painful part of the pain of grief is the sense that no one however sympathetic or supportive in intention, can share what we are feeling. It it would be a betrayal of our love for the one that we, we have lost to pretend otherwise. So we grieve alone, and the agony is unbelievable. The last part of what Packer is saying there, I think, is captured in Proverbs 14.10, where it says, Only the heart knows its own bitterness. And they are not necessarily meaning bitterness as this deep-seated anger, but just, I know my pain and suffering in a first-person way that it's very hard for me to ever to communicate that you would know in that same way. And it almost feels like a betrayal of the one that we've loved and we've lost to say, yes, you get it. But he makes another statement there that I don't think we can skip over is that grief may be as close to hell as some of us ever know. That it is a time when we feel absolutely helpless. We feel separated. There is intense pain that feels unending. And we recognize that that moment is absolutely hopeless apart from divine intervention. And we would cry out with Jesus as He did on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of hell. And as we go through this part here of learning our suffering story, we're going to look at seven themes that that makes our grief more hellish, or to use the other language that we've talked about, that makes it more, um, or makes it less clean, that allows all of these other contaminating factors to get into it, to where now we're not only dealing with our grief, we're dealing with all of these false interpretations that we've put on top of it. It 
And the first three just have to do with God. I begin to think, maybe God is just not good. I mean, how could God be good and I go through this? Or maybe it's that God doesn't care. That He's not loving. Or maybe I make sense of it in terms of God is just not able to help. God is not powerful. And those first three, I've heard it explained like, like trying to be in a bathtub and there's three balloons and I have two hands. And my goal is to try to get all three balloons under the water at the same time. And I can begin to understand how God is good and that God is loving. But then how could He be powerful and I still grieve like this? Okay, well maybe God is loving and, and God is powerful and He's... No, but He's not. And, and I just... I, I can't get my mind around all three of those. And so I begin to live as if God is not good or God is not loving or God does not care. And I hear people talk about it and it makes me angry because I want to believe that. Or it makes me sad because I wonder how they got it and I didn't. But my response, even to a place like this where I would want to get comfort, just becomes jaded and twisted because that one of those themes has begun to be put on my, on my grief. And, and at this point I'll just say... In step four, I'm not going to try to answer these themes because our goal at this point is to be able to put them into words, to allow them to be heard, because when I can't put them into words, they're just like a ghost that haunts everything that goes on. At this point, I may disagree with everything that I'm saying. Because when I say, God does not feel good, God does not care, God is not able to help, I disagree with those things. But our goal at this point is not to refute them, but to be honest with where we are in the process. Or another way, if I take God off the seat, then I put me on it, and I say, I deserve this. And again, it gives me some sense of control. Or maybe I begin to understand my grief in terms of relationships hurt. It's not worth it. They're not safe. And isolation becomes the means that I, I just don't let anybody get close again because that would hurt too much. That's how I protect myself. Or maybe I use the theme of life is meaningless. Maybe there is no right answer. Maybe trying to understand grief is like alchemy. I mean, for hundreds of years, there were people trying to turn common metals into gold, and they very sincerely wanted to do it, and they were very bright, intelligent people. It was just something that could not be done. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do when I explain my grief. Maybe I'm trying to put meaning on something that just defies meaning. Life is meaningless. That's it. Or maybe... Maybe the theme that I use to explain it is just that evil wins. And here I say, I give up. The problem was, is I kept trying to make this a story with a happy ending. I kept trying to make it a story where the good guys win. They don't. They die. And we get uncomfortable hearing those things and saying those things and that's why I'm glad C.S. Lewis would be honest. 
And as he wrote about the loss of his wife, he put his thoughts on paper. And he said, meanwhile, where is God? You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why is He so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? That's C.S. Lewis. He goes on, he says, I gradually have been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be the very time when God can't give it. You are like a drowning man who, who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. And there he's using the metaphor of a lifeguard. If you've ever had lifeguard training, one of the things they tell you is when somebody's flailing in the water, unless you have something to throw to them, don't swim out to them because they'll just grab you, make it where you can't swim, and you'll go down together. Um, he says perhaps our own reiterated cries deafen us to the voice that we hope to hear. After all, you must have a capacity to receive or even omnipotence can't give, can't give. And one of the things that I note in this is we're talking about two pages in C.S. Lewis's journal where in a single sitting, he goes from anger and cynicism to despair. And we just see the kind of fluctuation that goes on. But what he's doing is he's putting his suffering into words like Winston Smith advised us to do earlier. And in a few moments we're going to hear the kind of benefit that that provided to him that was even a surprise to him. But the point here is that our suffering story prevents us from hearing and receiving comfort. Our suffering story becomes how we take everything in. It becomes our common sense. It becomes what we know. Those seven themes that we talked about. And so what we want to do is to put it into words so that we can begin to hold it with a loose hand. Instead of saying, this is what it is. It has to be. Give me something. That I can hold these themes of a suffering story with a loose hand then I can hold them out to you and we can look at them together. And you can help me see how that they're not true. Even at this point, I don't know what to replace them with. But I feel less alone with them. And I think another thing we want to realize here is that God wants to hear these things. As we make statements like this, we don't approach a defensive deity. That's why Bob Kellerman tells us something that would probably surprise many of us. He says, numerically, there are more psalms of complaint and lament than psalms of praise and thanksgiving. A mood of faith trusts God enough to bring everything about us to Him. And I'll just give you a sample. Psalm 44. It's a psalm where in the beginning of the psalm, everything's going pretty good. And then there's a Salah, and everything starts to go really bad. And then there's another Salah. And the psalmist is trying to figure it out, and they can't figure it out. 
And then it transitions again at verse 23. And the last three verses of the psalm go like this. It's the psalmist crying out to God, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up! Come to our help! Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And the psalm stops. It just stops. It doesn't talk about a happy ending. It doesn't say, this is what I'm about. And if you just understood it and you could see this, then this is what was going on. And we ask, why? We covered that earlier when we said Psalms is God giving us words to speak back to us. And He knew there would be moments when those kinds of Psalms captured our experience best. Because when we got to the end of our Bible study, we didn't know what was going on. And a a nice, neat answer would just make our Bible seem like a foreign book that was completely irrelevant to us. And that's why Paul Tripp, he says it's an act of faith to bring that complaint to God in the pattern of these psalms. Your faith should never silence you in the dark hours of your grief. Rather, this is when we begin to understand how deep and rich and sturdy God's love for us really is. As I read that, I was reminded of the illustration that Russell Moore gives when he went to the orphanage in Russia uh, to pick up his newly adopted son. And he said the most eerie part of that experience was when he walked into an orphanage when there was dozens, maybe hundreds of children and it was silent. It was silent because the children had learned that crying did no good. No one would hear them. Nobody would respond to them. Nobody would hold them. Nobody would comfort them. And so you were in a building full of infants and it was quiet. And it was wrong. And oftentimes, that's how we feel in the midst of our grief. We feel like it is wrong to be honest about the pain and the confusion and the hurt and the suffering that we go through. And Scripture gets that. If you read Lamentations, an entire book trying to give voice to the experience of grief, at the end of it, Lamentations 5.3, it says, We have become like orphans, fatherless. But that was answered with one of the clearest promises that Jesus ever gave. John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will hear you. How many times in the Scripture does it say God heard the cries of His people? We don't have to be silent. In the first part of receiving God's comfort, 
is trusting Him with our tears and our fears. And H. Norman Wright again helps us to put that into words as he talks about the experience that we're trying to, to put out there with our suffering story. He says, you are not exactly who you were. The person you lost was part of your identity. You were someone's mother or aunt or spouse or brother. And you continue to be that person in your heart and memory. But there's a vacant place where your loved one stood. And here, we just see the unwanted changes and that struggle to assimilate it into our story. And we're wrestling with that question, who am I now? And we're looking for an explanation that makes this make sense. And for many of us here, when we heard those seven themes of the suffering story, even as briefly as we went through them, part of what scared us is how much they made sense to us. How much we could relate to them. How much that resonated with us. And I would, I would simply say this. The fact that you can see them as destructive and hear them as not good means that those, destruction theme, those destructive themes do not have the place of dominance in your mind and in your heart. It's when you can't see them as destructive and when you, excuse me, can't see them as not good, that they begin to have that place of dominance, that they are rooted and have taken a precedence in your life. When we can see them that way, there is still a great deal of hope, particularly when we can share them in a room and in smaller relationships than this and begin to have people take us by the hand and hear us as we walk out of that. 